the corporate infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Drake Campbell, and this is Tell, a podcast where queer people tell queer stories. For five years, I've been hosting and curating a night of live storytelling at BGSQD, which is a queer bookstore in the city. And now I'm sharing those stories with the rest of the world. So if you need a dose of queer community or you just want to hear great stories told by the people who live them, Strap on your headphones, put in your contacts, because Tell is queering the narrative and telling our stories on our terms. Each episode of Tell features two stories that center around a theme, and this episode's theme is crossing borders. David Reyes is going to tell us a little bit about himself and his mom, but first, Pauline Park is going to take us on a serendipitous trip to a remote island. Pauline Park is a longtime New York City-based activist and writer. It's kind of funny. I arranged to have a date with this woman, and we're at this straight bar, and we're hanging out, we're drinking, and I notice this group of older queer folk hanging out, and one of them is Pauline Park. She's just really charming, really wonderful. And we all end up like taking pictures together. And I'm like on this first date with this woman. We had a ball. She became the first openly transgender person to grand marshal the New York City Pride Parade. Her story, which she titled, What You Can Learn from Rocks and Stones in a Foreign Country, was recorded in April 2018. Thanks so much, and thanks, Dre, for inviting me here. We actually, believe it or not, we met in a bar. Yeah. Wasn't that kind of bar, but, you know. (laughs) Please do. Do you know how to use it? Yeah, I know. Oh, great. Fantastic. You can do flash and not flash, you know. (laughs) Um, It's really wonderful to be here. I, uh, I think the first time I came here was when Greg and his husband uh, started the place. It was just shortly after you opened the place, and it's really wonderful to actually participate in an event here. Um, you know, it's funny because when I saw the description that Ray sent out, higher learning, I thought, oh, okay, that means I have to talk about grad school? <laughs> I think I interpreted your title. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, I interpreted it very literally, so I'm thinking, okay, what did I do in grad school that was very interesting? You know, given that grad school is just one long miasma of pain and despair, you know? uh, (laughs) I could talk about that, too, but... um, And I don't have too many, but I thought when I was listening to uh, Jude's story about the crevasse, I thought, you know, maybe what I'll do is talk about rocks and stones. And so maybe the title, yeah, my, I'm going to entitle my own uh, little story as What You Can Learn from Rocks and Stones. 
in foreign countries. Uh, <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, it's really interesting because I've actually bumped into rocks and stones quite a lot, uh, literally and figuratively. Um, but I thought, you know, when I was listening to the Kravis story, I was thinking about what happened in Greece, uh, a trip I took years and years ago. That it's kind of interesting. It's not kind of a laugh story or even uh, a mild chuckle story, uh, but uh, it's uh, it's kind of I think it, it might interest you. And then I'll, if I have time, I'll tell you my story about the island off the coast of Norway, uh, and that's kind of an interesting story too. Once again, probably not even a stray chuckle. Uh, but uh, kind, of, kind of interesting. And then if I have time, maybe I'll tell <laughs> my Korea story. And if I have time after that, then I'll finish with my, uh, my Anthony Weiner story. It's a true story. <laughs> yeah, that's a true story. Maybe you'll have to have me back for the Anthony oh, Weiner okay. story. Uh, I have an Anthony Weiner story and a Chris Quinn story. And, you know. um, but anyway, back to rocks. Um, so uh, I... Uh, went to UW-Madison uh, as an undergrad, which was sort of the beginning of life because I grew up in a Christian fundamentalist household. And so fun was, um, you know, sitting in a different pew uh, on Sunday morning than the one we usually sat in. That was kind of the radical move. Um, so, uh, <laughs> and I always knew, I think I always knew I was transgendered, but it was, when puberty hit that I sort of realized I was attracted to other uh, male-bodied people. So I actually had m my first coming out was my gay coming out. And then my second one many years later was my uh, transgender coming out transition. Anyway, so um, at UW-Madison, I came out in my first semester. And that's an interesting story too, but I'm gonna fast forward to uh, my fourth year when I did a study abroad program. and. Uh, it was in London, it was a brand new program, and uh, I was recruited for the program, and I thought, great, because I'd always uh, wanted to live in Europe. And so uh, I planned to go to London for a year. I actually fell in love with the city and ended up staying for a second year. Anyway, in my first year, I had a brief and torrid little affair with an Englishman, and... Um, <laughs> To the extent that Englishmen can be torrid, I don't know. This is, seems a little bit, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, Stephen was really interesting and cultured, and he decided to take me to Greece f as a birthday present for my 21st birthday. So I actually turned 21, 35,000 feet somewhere over, you know. France or Germany or somewhere in there. And um, we went to Athens, which is um, noisy and polluted, uh, but has some great stuff, you know, great rocks and stones. And uh, we actually went into the Parthenon back then. This is how long ago this was. You could actually walk around the Parthenon, which is amazing. Um, but the really interesting trip was, uh, Stephen said, you know, we can either do Olympia or Delphi. And I chose Delphi because my very first course as an undergrad was in Greek and Roman civilization. And uh, we read all the stuff about, you know, the Greeks. Uh, uh, not, you know, not the gay stuff. That, <laughs> that, that was extracurricular. I had to do that on my own. Uh, <laughs> I discovered K.J. Dover's book, Greek Homosexuality, in the library. I was like, 
you know, those uh, red figure vases are really racy, you know. You can learn a lot from them. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, so I said Delphi because it was called the navel of the world. And that's where the Sybil would sit on her three-legged stool. And speaking of high, there, these vapors would rise and she'd kind of go into this weird trance-like state and, you know, predict things, but her oracular uh, predictions were always couched in this really weird, mysterious language, so uh, you could never tell if it really came true or not, because it was always like, you know. Um, so we uh, rented a little Italian sports car, uh, which was, you know, probably about twice as large as <laughs> this little screen, and uh, fortunately, thank God, my boyfriend was a really good driver because when we drove, we drove across the Corinth Canal, um, which is amazing, and then we drove up the mountain. And Delphi is way up in the mountains. It is, I, has anyone been to Delphi? It's, if you go to Greece, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But it was, uh, it was, like, a, it was like a Snoopy story. It was a dark, dark and stormy night. And thunderstorms, uh, it's not like there were street lights. This was complete darkness, so we had just the car lights, right? And every once in a while, the lightning bolts would strike, and uh, it would illuminate the whole area, and I'd look down and see a thousand-foot cliff to our right. And there was no railing, nothing, nothing. Just mm, complete darkness with our little headlights. So, you know, thank God Stephen was a really good driver and with this little sports car. And it's pouring rain, by the way. And at several points, we nearly kind of aquaplaned and went off the road. Yeah, I mean, 1,000 feet down. Um, and so, you know, it was amazing we made it in one piece to the top. So we got to the top of the hill, to the mountains, way up. Uh, got to the top. Next morning, oh, our hotel room. This was when Greece is still pretty cheap. Back then, it was dirt cheap. We had a room that was larger than this room, our hotel room. Marble floors. It, and it, you wouldn't believe it was, I can't remember what it was, but it was, you know, it was like $50 a night or something. It was incredible. Um, anyway, basically, uh, when the morning uh, broke, sun broke out, and it was absolutely glorious. And the, the, the valley, you could see the valley and the, you know, the temples and the ancient ruins, and it was absolutely glorious. And you know, I kind of skipped towards the, uh, the ruins. And uh, so Delphi was really amazing. The other amazing thing was uh, Mycenae. And uh, that's on the Peloponnesus. I don't know if you've all read about it, but it's uh, an ancient site of um, kind of pre-Greek Minoan culture. And there's this incredible tomb called the Beehive Tomb. It looks like a beehive on the outside. And it's associated with the legend of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra. If you've ever heard or seen the opera Electra by Richard Strauss, Agamemnon. You know, it's all screeching, you know, German, sh shrieking in German at the top of your lungs and about, you know, incest and death and so, you know, sehr Deutsch, you know. And uh, anyway, uh, so when we got to Mycenae, it was really interesting because there was no around and the, the site was closed. I don't know if it was a holiday or something. It was kind of overcast. Um, and I was so disappointed because. Uh, the fence was closed, but it was just a little, little chain link fence. 
So my boyfriend said, you know, you really have to go in because it's really amazing, so just climb the fence. And I was, you know, younger and limber. I wasn't wearing a dress, so I just, you know. <laughs> uh, climbed over the fence and uh, got into the beehive tomb. And normally, if you go there, you know, there are thousands of tourists and clicking with the cameras. No one. And it was the most mysterious thing. It was, it was really eerie. It was almost spooky, but kind of in a good way. And I don't know if Agamemnon and Clytemnestra are actually lying in that beehive tomb, but I really felt the spirit of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra. It was, it was the eeriest thing. It was com almost completely dark, and you could see, you could kind of vaguely see down this long hall. There's no lights or anything, and it was, it was just the eeriest thing. It was such an extraordinary experience. And then I came back out of the beehive tomb, clambered over the fence, and you know, we drove on. Um, the experience that I've had since then, the only experience that rivaled that was uh, last year I went to Norway for the first time. I went to Norway, Spain, and Iceland. It's about five weeks in Europe. It was kind of an amazing trip. Um, and uh, part of the trip was actually tracking down uh, my father's ancestors. Uh, my father's parents emigrated from Norway uh, in 1883 and 1887. And um, my father's father actually found the church uh, that he had attended um, and stayed five days in this city called Haugesund, which is where he was from, or as Norwegians would say, Haugesund. Um, <laughs> where are you going? Oh, here you can see. Um, and I'd taken a, one semester of Norwegian, and I, I'm taking a second semester now, and I really can't remember much, but because basically no one studies Norwegian. It's not, you know, it's not like, you know, French or Spanish or whatever. And so all you have to do is uh, throw out two or three sentences in Norwegian, and they're absolutely floored that, you know, non-Norwegian. So um, uh, that was my kind of go-to uh, line to uh, kind of ingratiate myself uh, with the Norsk. And uh, anyway, uh, one of the places where my father's ancestors lived. One ancestor lived on a little island called Ro, uh, Rever, or the, the, they kind of say, this is kind of say, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> a little bit guttural, but anyway. Uh, and it's a little island, it's about half the size of Roosevelt Island. Uh, so you can imagine about how big it is. And there's only a uh, little over 100, 150 people living on this island. Uh, it's a 25 minute ferry ride from um, Haugesund. So I looked up the schedule and I thought, okay, I'll catch the 3.30 ferry and I'll be there by, uh, you know, around four. Uh, but I was at the wrong end of the wharf, <laughs> I'm at the wrong end of the brig. And so at 3.30, I see this uh, ferry go by. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's the ferry. <laughs> so I thought, darn. And so I, uh, there's a hotel. Uh, <laughs> Fortunately, there's a, there was a ferry an hour and 10 minutes later at 4.40. And so I um, thought, okay, well, I'll catch that ferry. And it was the most extraordinary thing because missing the 3.30 ferry ended up being uh, one of those almost bizarrely fortuitous things. 
So I catch the 440 ferry. It's this tiny little ferry. It's really tiny. They have these seats that can sit maybe half a dozen people inside, and then you know another half dozen people can sit outside. And because not many tourists go to Haugesund, and not many uh, tourists go to fewer tourists go to Rever because it's not very well known. But I'd read about this site that I really wanted to visit, called the Viking Tuftit, which is an ancient site, actually predates the Vikings, uh, that was inhabited. Uh, probably starting around, you know, the fifth, sixth century, um, on the island, on the, uh, the southern end of the island, it was like a fish, fishing village um, at this uh, location called Grenevika. And uh, I thought, okay, I'll get there because I can see it on the map, and I'll, you know, I'll just walk there. Anyway, so I get off the ferry, as I was getting off, there's this old man pushing a wheelbarrow with dirt and flowers in it. And I get off the ferry, and there's this uh, building which is kind of, it looks kind of like a barn. And I don't know what I thought there'd be some tourist information center, but this is a little, you know, a little island. So I'm looking up like some, you know, clueless tourist. And the old man comes towards me and says, Are you looking for the toilette? And I said, No, uh, I'm looking for the Viking Tuftit at Grenavika. And he goes, oh. <laughs> And then I threw out my one or two sentences of Norwegian. I said, uh, uh, And he goes, oh, you know, <laughs> and, you know, especially, you know, with my Asian face, he's like, you know, uh, absolutely astonished. And uh, he goes, oh, okay. And I go, uh, that means my father's uh, father, my grandfather came from uh, Haugesund. And uh, my, my father's mother also uh, came from uh, this area. And uh, he was so impressed by that. And he goes, and I said, I, I, have, uh, I have ancestors who lived on River. He goes, really? He goes, what are their names? <laughs> I said, well, uh, the one that I've traced here is named um, uh, Kari daughter Reve. That's a very kind of you know, Norwegian name. Actually, literally means Kari, the daughter of Jan, who uh, lived on River. <laughs> the Norwegian is kind of literal, you know, it's like, you know. Uh, as my Norwegian teacher likes to say. Um, so uh, he was absolutely floored by this. Uh, he goes, oh, where are you from? And I said, well, I live in New York. And he goes, oh, okay. So he goes, wait here. So he pushes the little wheelbarrow in the, this barn, this other barn. And he comes out with his daughter, uh, adult daughter. Uh, I guess she's in her 50s or something. And uh, she apparently, when he told her that I was from New York, she was fascinated because she's been to New York and she, she loves New York. Uh, so she suggested that he invite me back to their house. And that's a kind of an unusual thing. I mean, Norwegians aren't, you know, they're not like Italians or something. Oh, you know, Cugino, come here, you know. Uh, so they, uh, they took me back to their house uh, and I met his wife. Um, and they have this house that's on a little perch on a hill overlooking the harbor with this beautiful view of the harbor. And they just heated up some pizza. And we talked about um, genealogy. He showed me his genealogical chart, which goes back to this uh, famous king, Harald uh, Halfadra, which means Harold Fairhair. Uh, the thing is, half the people in Norway are descended from Harold Fairhair. You know? He's kind of like the Genghis Khan of Norway, you know? Uh, he spread his seed far and wide. Um, 
Uh, so anyway, basically, uh, what's waggy about this, so then I showed him my uh, father's ancestry uh, and genealogical chart on Ancestry.com. And <laughs> yeah, and um, I, tra I traced back uh, uh, 14 generations. And uh, one, of his an one of my father's ancestors uh, was named Jan Torgerson Reve. Uh, so what's this guy's name? Jan Torgerson. <laughs> and uh, so who knows, we might even be related anyway. So he's fascinated by this. Uh, oh, I forgot to tell you, when, when I told him I wanted to go to this ancient site, this ancient fishing village, he said, you'll never find it on your own. He was very right about that. So we go back to his place. He says, come back to uh, my house and we'll have a little uh, bite to eat. And then I'll take you there. Turns out that he was a tour guide on the island until a year before when he retired at the age of 79. <laughs> and he's now 80. So anyway, his wife lent me her boots, which was a really good thing because I was, I was wearing these things and it was muddy, it had rained unusually uh, hard rains in the last few weeks, it was mud all over the place. And so getting there was not walking there. It was like mountain climbing, basically, with no signs. You know, it was, it was wilderness. No people, no animals, no nothing. And we had to climb over rocks, and here's this 80-year-old guy who's as limber as a, uh, as a, as a billy goat, basically. <laughs> he's, you know, he's in better shape than me, you know. And uh, so we're uh, climbing over rocks and going, and there's one tiny little sign that's kind of half on a branch somewhere. But basically, if you, if you didn't have a, a tour guide or someone who knew the island, there's no way you could have possibly gotten there. So anyway, we walked there, and we had unusually good weather. It was beautiful. It was sunny. It was you know, relatively warm uh, for Norway, which means it was you know, in the 60s or so. And uh, anyway, um, we got to the Viking Tufte. And I have to say, it's the most extraordinary place. Uh, I posted a photo on my Facebook page, uh, and it's one that you won't see on anyone else's Facebook pages because no, no one gets there except people who live on the island. And it's just this little kind of pond uh, surrounded by um, kind of rocks. And uh, it's so mysterious. It's the most extraordinary place. And I really felt as I've not felt anywhere else, except maybe, maybe uh, the beehive tomb in Mycenae, this extraordinary sense of presence, but it was atavistic. It was this atavistic presence of ancient ancestors. And uh, he pointed out that some of the stones were actually kind of carved. You could see carvings, and so you could see these kind of um, prehistoric peoples practically uh, carving. And uh, so from the 6th or 7th century onwards, this, uh, this little area was inhabited by people because the pond, the ocean, is sort of the equivalent of a, a city block or two beyond these rocks. And at high tide, the ocean would spill into the pond and bring fresh fish. And so it was a perfect place for uh, these people to fish. But this island is really, it's, it's, it's remote. And uh, before, you know, motorized ferries, you just had to kind of paddle out there. Uh, anyway, we, we got back and then we, uh, uh, I took the ferry back, and, as, uh, and when I left their house, Jan and his wife said, uh, when you're on the ferry, look up, and as you go out, 
of the harbor, you'll see the house and wave at us and we'll wave back to you. So I'm going out on the ferry, and these other you know, Norwegians are kind of looking at me like, you know, who's that? And uh, I see them, and I wave up to them. And I'm going, Ooh. and they're waving back at me. And you know, the Norwegians on the ferry are looking like, oh, she must know the locals or something. <laughs> and, uh, and actually, it was really funny, because one of the people on the island that we ran into as we were walking back, one of Jan's neighbors was wearing a t-shirt that said New York. And, uh, um, so that was a really, really extraordinary um, moment, I think. It really, it, as I say, the, what was so fortuitous, it felt almost like synchronicity. If I had not missed the 3.30 ferry, I would not run into Jan Torgerson, and there's no way I would have gotten to the Viking Tufte. I would have gotten off the ferry and seen a few you know, buildings and maybe walked around a little, but I would have never gotten to this remote little part of the island. And so sometimes it feels that rocks and stones in foreign countries can teach you a lot, including uh, the extraordinary intervention of nature and spirits to guide you to places where you never expected to be. Ah, I love the sound of Pauline's voice. I could. I think I may have said this more than once, but I could listen to her read the phone book. It's very soothing. You can find Pauline Park at paulinepark.com and on Twitter at Pauline Park. David Reyes is a Latinx American comedian from New Jersey. By day, he's a community health advocate and by night, he tells jokes and performs improv wherever they'll let him. He enjoys long walks on the beach and watching people trip. His story was recorded in August 2018. This is my first time at the tank, so I feel kind of obliged to introduce myself a little bit. Uh, my name is David Reyes. Uh, <laughs> English is my second language. Uh, I kept seeing my pediatrician until he died because I'm mad loyal. <laughs> and learning how to have sex for me was like learning how to ride a bike uh, because someone else's dad taught me how to do that. So, oh guys, relax. My dad taught me how to ride a bike. It's fine. Um, I was struggling a little bit last night to try to figure out what I wanted to talk about. Because um, storytelling is a little different than stand-up, but you kind of have to be really authentic. Um, and I got nervous because I didn't know if I wanted to come off as like cool and suave, uh, if I wanted to be like an activist and seem really cool like I do stuff, or if I just really wanted to pull out a limp wrist and a Britney playlist and just gay it the fuck up. Um, and so I did what any man in their late 20s does in a time of crisis, and I called my mom last night, because uh, I have been struggling with something I call a first-generation Latino-American guilt. Um, it is, yeah, see, nobody here suffers from it, which is nice. Um, it's a serious issue that's affecting uh, millions of uh, American Latinos. Basically, your parents tried really hard to move to this country, and then you grow up wanting to tell dick jokes. And you feel guilty about that. And it sucks because I had just gotten over my Catholic guilt. 
So now I'm like kind of struggling with this thing and I called my mom and I was like, look, I have a show tomorrow. I haven't really written anything down. I don't know what to do. Um, and so we talked about my Latin guilt and I wanted to see if I could, you know, talk over what we talked about last night. Um, so to put it into context for you, I'm gonna parallel a little bit my mother's life with my life, uh, where we were at the different ages in our time. Um, when my mother was nine years old, her father had died. Uh, she was living in El Salvador. Um, her mother wasn't around very often anymore because she was working, trying to get water and food and making sure they had a roof over their head. Um, when I was uh, 10 years old, my biggest crisis was that I didn't want to get haircuts. I was such a brat that my dad had to learn how to cut hair, buy his own tools, and then pay me $10 to cut my hair. And that was a steal, because it was like $15 for a regular haircut, and with this, I got to get $10, they could shut me up for a few hours, I would, they could control the way I looked. That was a big plus. Um, so, it worked out for all of us, but obviously, our hearts were pretty different at nine years old. Uh, when my mom was 13, um, her mother left for the United States. Uh, just one day, she went to get a job in the capital and instead got off of the bus and moved to the United States. Yeah. Um, when I was 13, the saddest moment of my life was that I didn't get the role I wanted in the musical that year. Um, but my parents actually, both of them were there, and they both advocated for me to go for the role that nobody else wanted. Um, it was the music man, and it was the role of the guy who doesn't sing. <laughs> and my parents had heard me sing and practice, and they said, you are the most qualified for that role. And the guy was a dick. So one plus one equals that was my role. Um, and they told me, you walk into that place tomorrow, you tell Mrs. Silverman, I want that role, and she will give you that role. And she was right. And so, you know, at 13, I had a mother and father who were there for me to you know, just go over stupid stuff like not getting a role in a play, which, which was nice. Um, when my mom was 16, she had to make a really hard decision uh, to tell her mother that she wanted to move to Honduras with her aunt. Um, and that really just meant that my mom might not see her for a lot longer, that they would have been separated for another couple of years while my grandmother worked her ass off to provide a better life for her. Uh, when I was 16, I had to make the hard choice to tell my mother that I didn't want to be in quinceaneras anymore. And I know that, it's, yeah, it's funny, but like that is my Vietnam. Like quinceaneras were the worst time in my life for me. I rented so many tuxedos that there was a point where buying a tuxedo was a career investment. Most people don't know this, but there are professional quinceanera dancers. Like if you're within a certain age range, you can be paid to professionally perform in people's quinceaneras and pretend to be their friends. And that's where I had to draw the line. Um, so luckily, I, I, I was able to tell her that. I also uh, came out of the closet. So, you know, funny enough, we both ended up disappointing our parents at the age of 16. Um, and so I was talking to her about when we were both 22, and that was the first time when, where I found that we actually had an intersection in our lives, sort of, because uh, we were both working fast food in the United States by 22. Uh, my mom was a fry cook. So she was cooking up fries by day, by night, she was uh, going to secretary school. I think in like Long Island City too. I've walked by the place, it's crazy. Um, and so she was doing that in her time. I was a manager at a Shake Shack, which seems pretty great. You know, you're around Shack sauce all day, all day. like it's not too bad. Um, they paid me really good money. I was there for a total of three weeks. 
That means they fired me as a manager after three weeks. I went to college. I have a bachelor's in science in international relations and diplomacy with a minor, two minors in French and classical studies. You can clap. That is right. I got a pretty decent scholarship for that and I got out of college and I said, fuck it, I wanna be a fry cook. But my parents supported me after I got fired and uh, my family had a restaurant at the time that I was just trying, they were trying to close it down because my dad was retiring from restaurants. And they were both not mad at me, which I thought was weird. Because I got fired because I was just late all the time. <laughs> That's a completely preventable thing. Um, funny enough, there was a class action lawsuit. Apparently, I worked $50 overtime. So I got those $50 in the mail two years later. Props to Shake Shack. Um, but I remember them not being mad at me, even though we weren't sure what the future held for, for me, for them, for anything. I, I had no income. My dad's income was getting smaller and smaller. And here I was being like, hey, can I have 20 bucks for gas? Um, and they supported me anyway. And it was strange because I, I felt kind of like I was failing them, but they didn't really make it a big deal. And so I started to realize that failure for my mother growing up looked very different than failure for me looks because for her, failure was not surviving. It was not having a roof over her head. It was not being able to communicate with people around her. Failure for me looks like $3,000 in improv classes in one year. That looks like failure to me. And it kind of is a failure because I'm not using it. But it was, it was strange to kind of look at each other and, and she was trying to tell me that that's what she wanted. Like the whole time she had fought for so many years for me to have the opportunity to have these kind of problems. You know, like growing up for her, she would have loved to have spent $3,000 on improv classes. I think she told me it took her two months to save up $1,000 at one point in her life. And so I like tried to understand where she was coming from because I, I still felt guilty. And so she reminded me um, about a time not too long ago when we were in Buffalo Wild Wings American pastime, and I was talking to my grandmother, asking her what she wanted to order, trying to figure out what kind of beers and wings she was gonna have. Um, and the waitress came up and made a face when I was talking to my grandma. And uh, I asked her if there was a problem, and she said, yeah, I just feel kind of uncomfortable. I don't know if you guys are talking about me or not. And I said, we are. And then I just went back to speaking Spanish. And my mom was, surprised by that because when she was 27 she was quiet and she was shy and she was timid and don't get me wrong she's a latina firecracker like she if you put sofia vergara and charo in a blender and then pack her into five foot four woman you get my mother which is great for like weekend stuff um but you know it's it was funny because you know, despacito was the number one song for six months and I still get weird looks for talking to my grandma in Spanish at Buffalo Wild Wings. But my mom was surprised that I said something because she at her time would never have said anything and she was explaining that that's what she wanted me to do. That she wanted me to be somebody who stood up in front of people, who spoke, who was honest, and she told me for the first time in a long time that she's pretty proud of me. And it made me kind of reflect on how interesting, especially with the things that are going on with immigration, the way that I came to be here in front of you today. And if you think about it, my grandma one day just got off of a bus, 
and decided she wanted to build a better life for herself. And she did that for 10 years. She sacrificed 10 years plus of her life just to get a shit ton of money. And then she came back across the border to pick up my mom, brought her right back. My dad was so in love with my mom that he jumped the border within like two months of her leaving. They got engaged right away. They had children at 26. And I keep thinking like all of these things happened so that I could stand in front of you and just say that learning how to have sex for me was like learning how to ride a bike because I have sex with older people. <laughs> That's my time, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. And queer folks, remember, if you don't tell your story, someone else will. So get out there and tell queer stories. I mean it. Hell is created, hosted, and produced by me, Dre Campbell. The stories are recorded live on location at the Bureau of General Services Queer Division, a pop-and-pop bookshop and event space in the LGBTQ Center in Manhattan. Go say hi to Greg and Donnie who run BGSQD and tell them we sent you. Tell is recorded by Mariel Reyes and Onel Moulet and is edited by Mariel Reyes and Kyrell Palmer. Our theme song was written and recorded by Drake Campbell and Peter Letra. Emily Bogosian is the captain, and Sasha Mathias is the bigger boat. Remember to follow us on Spotify, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google us on Google Play, and slide into our DMs at TellQueers, or DreBiz on Instagram and Twitter. That's Queers and Biz with a Z. Tell is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.